Well, hello. Good morning, New Life family. How are you today? Are you awake? It's actually nice and sunny and warm out there, so you have no excuse to not be awake this morning. My name is Elena. It is so good to just be together each and every Sunday as we gather. It's just such a reminder of why we're here, and it's just so great to be together as a family. If this is your first time here, we would love to get to know you. Um, we would invite you to come to one of our Connection Centrals. There's two in the lobby, one on the patio, even one in the parking lot on the way out. If you want to stop by, we have a gift for you. We'd just love to just answer any questions about how you might plug in here to our family and get more involved at New Life, all the fun events that are coming up. Um, you know, we're going to start off the service with this song called Great Things, and my family actually got a little bit of time away after main event, and we went up to Bass Lake and spent a day in Yosemite, and um, we actually, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I had, it had been a long time since my son had been to Yosemite, he didn't even remember it, and obviously it's so beautiful this year with all the rain that we've gotten, but we woke up even earlier than we were planning on to get there to beat the crowds, and we ended up coming out, if you've been to Yosemite, you go through the tunnel and then there is the tunnel view, right? And so we ended up getting there on accident. It wasn't really planned, but literally at the exact moment that the sun rose right above, like came out from El Capitan. And it was like, oh my gosh. You know, like one of those things that just kind of stops you in your tracks. And I know it sometimes sounds cliche, but when we have see those kind of grand things that God has done on the earth, it can sometimes, you know, it, it lends us to worship. And it lends us to be like, God, you are capable of great things. And while sometimes it's easy to see the things in our world, the physical canyons that, are, that God has made and have done great things, but the truth is that he also does great things in our lives. And he is capable of great things in your life. And it might be slow going, you know, like a glacier going through, going through a valley. It might be slow going. But this moment, this morning, as we prepare our hearts to worship, I just want you to think about and have eyes to see the ways that God is doing great things in your life. And maybe it's just the small things, one little increment at a time. But let's just pray that God would open our eyes to the great things he has for us. And so as you stand up, why don't you say to the person next to you, he is capable of great things in your life.
that course again all my life.
of the goodness of God. And I will sing, and I will sing of the goodness of God. If you believe that, let's sing that one more time. All my life. All my life you have been faithful. Your voice. All my life you have been so, so every breath that I am able and I will sing of the goodness of God and I will sing and I will sing of the goodness of God and I will sing and I will sing of the goodness of God thank you Lord God, we bless you. We praise you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that you are good, God. We give you glory and you are worthy of our praise. Amen. Shout. 
Jesus, this morning my heart is so encouraged just listening to the voices of my friends and my family, lifting their voices to you in worship. God, it is our prayer that you would be honored, that your heart would be blessed this morning by our voices as well. We just pray that the offerings that we have brought before your feet of our hearts and our words and our song, Lord, that they would be a, a, a pleasing aroma to you this morning because you are the reason why we are here. You are the reason why all of us very different and unique people come to one place to lift up your name. You are worthy of all of our praise, God, because it is your breath in our lungs, God. Everything we have is yours. We just pray that you would continue to be honored by our worship this morning. Our worship doesn't stop now, God, so we just pray that your heart would be blessed by our, by our worship this morning. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the goodness that has, that has been the markings of our, all of our lives every day. We thank you that it follows us and that your grace is what leads us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Like I said, we're going to continue in our worship. Our worship is not done this morning, so I'd like to invite our ushers forward to receive our offering. You know, this truly is an act of worship, and if you would like to partner with what God is doing through New Life, we welcome you to practice generosity here. Um, the one thing that is unique about, about giving to the church financially is that we have such a wide area that we get to bless people with, um, not just here locally, but also around the world. So thank you for all of your generosity. You may not know this, but if you, you don't have to just um, give right here as the baskets get passed, but we, um, you can also give online. You can set up recurring giving through our app. There's also um, iPads that are super easy to use if you want to do that on your way out, because God has truly been um, at work this, this summer especially, and so we would just love for you to be a part of what he's doing. And speaking of God being up to something and doing something amazing, we are, we are actually going to do something kind of cool in a couple of weeks. We have this, this tradition here at New Life called Celebration Sunday. And we celebrate new life, both in little babies and children, and also through baptism. And so we're going to be having child dedications during service like usual, like we do on a Celebration Sunday. So if you have a little bundle of joy that you would like to dedicate to the Lord, we would love to partner with you as your New Life family to come alongside you in that parenting journey. But we're going to do a little something different for baptism. We are actually going to go and have a beach baptism. So it'll be kind of twofold. We're going to be baptizing people, and we're also just going to celebrate all the ways that God moved through the summer as a family. And I think that there might be some toasty mallows involved. And it's actually going to be a really special for my family because my son actually is going to get baptized there. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it would, it would just, even if you're not going to get baptized or you maybe you don't know anybody, I would just personally love for you to come to the beach to cheer on my son because we know how important like child dedications this is another step in that I know how important it is to have his church family um, cheering him on and being a part of his life so 
We would love to have you come out. It's good. We're going to do it at 5 p.m. It should be super nice. Um, we're going to have a little bonfire. We're going to baptize people right at the beginning. Feel free to bring your own dinner if you want, but we're just going to hang out um, as a church family and celebrate all that God has done and all that he is doing. And if you are feeling that little nudge, like it is time for you to take that step in your faith, maybe God has, has been working on you this summer and you're ready to take that step, um, we would love for you to talk to you about it at Connection Central. We also, next week, in between services, we're going to have a little uh, a meeting that you can ask questions, you can figure out all the logistics, you can share a little bit of your story, you can hear from other people who are going to be baptized. So next, next Sunday, in between services, um, there's going to be a baptism meeting. Just, you know, if anything, just this week, maybe just start praying about it. Start praying about it maybe for yourself, but also maybe you could be that voice in somebody's life that's like, hey, I think, I think maybe you should be baptized, you know? Maybe that might be a cool step for you in your faith. So just start praying about this that this week because I think it's going to be a super special time for our New Life family down at the beach. Um, we're going to be at the end of Grand. So just start praying about it this week that God would be moving. And we are going to continue in our series, The Summer Storyteller, Learning Through the Parables. So why don't you just allow this video to prepare your hearts. Stories are the language of the soul. They have a way of penetrating the heart in a way few other influences can. This is why Jesus used storytelling so often to illustrate deeper truths. He knew the power of a story to cut through to the heart. These now famous stories are known as parables. They were Jesus's way to communicate an important kingdom principle in a form that we could remember and that would meet us where we are at. Although the details of these stories were fictitious, the kingdom principles are not. Today, they continue to remind us who God is and what he calls us to be a part of and how much he loves us. Well, good morning, church. How are you all? Are you alert? All right. Well, it's my privilege to be able to share another one of the parables with you this morning. Some of you are looking and going, who is that? So my name is Dave Vasquez. I had the privilege for a number of years of serving as executive pastor under the previous pastor, Ron, Ron Salisbury, which some of, someone reminded me this morning, tomorrow is seven years since Pastor Ron has been gone. Um, when Pastor David came, I changed my role to more of a teaching ministry, and uh, so I've enjoyed that, doing that a lot. Uh, I've taught some different classes. A couple of my favorites, one I did on Great Digs, we looked at archaeology. I couldn't, I was so excited about all of the things that have been discovered that validate the scripture. And then another one that was really fun was, was I did one uh, called Daily Life in the Time of Jesus. And we looked at some of the customs and how they help us understand things in the scripture um, more. I've also had the privilege of taking some of you to Israel and in the footsteps of Paul. <laughs> Whoa, look, there's people there. And that's been fun. And uh, actually, I'm going to be taking a group of 35 to Egypt in November. And uh, so I'm going to be starting a new class, if any of you are interested. They have these little things about it. It's called Egypt in the Bible. It has the date of November of the 26th of, 16th of August on there. I'm not ready, so I postponed it to September 6th. So we're going to start on September 6th, Wednesday nights, if any of you are interested in coming. And uh, we're just going to explore how Egypt is related to the biblical narrative. You know, Abraham went to Egypt, Joseph, um, the, the bondage, Moses came out of Egypt. Even Jesus went to Egypt. So we're going to look at, um, at Egypt in the Bible and how it affects the biblical narrative. Now, since I've been in this, involved in this teaching kind of thing, I thought, why not be, do what teachers do this morning and give you a quiz? <laughs> oh, no. No, this one's going to be fun. 
Um, I want to give you an get a, get a little bit of an idea for the meaning of this of this prefix of para. So I'm going to give you a, a, a definition, and I want you to give me the word. And the hint is they all be, begin with para, and then they're of an increasing difficulty. Are you ready? Okay. So two lines at the same distance between them are parallel, meaning beside one another. When I indent, a, do an indentation at the beginning of a new thought, I start a para. Graph, very good, to write beside. When I go to the law office and I don't get to see the lawyer, but I see someone who works with him, I see a para-legal, someone who works beside a lawyer. When I don't say exactly what you do, but I say it my way, I para- well, You guys are good. <laughs> means to tell beside. One organism that feeds off another is called a para-site, to feed beside. If I have a mental disorder where I see things that aren't there, I have paranoia. Little harder. I hear the volume going down. <laughs> Beside my mind, all right? When I copy something wrong because my eye picked up a word in the margin, I made a para. See, I know I'd get you. It's called a parablepsis. <laughs> it means to look. Look by the side, all right? And, and finally, when I tell a story that has a meaning more than what just the story is, I'm giving you a parable, which, as we are reminded, means to throw or to cast beside. And that's what we're looking at this summer. We're looking at the storytelling of Jesus, but in particular, we're looking at his parables. These parables have a surface story, but they also have a deeper meaning underneath. And it's obscured a little bit. The reason that it's obscured is not because Jesus wants to hide the meaning from people. It's because he wants them to dig for it. He wants it to be provocative. He wants it to engage reflection. Now, some of the parables have a very interesting way of doing a reversal at the end. A big surprise reversal. And we've seen some of those as we've gone through the parables this summer. You remember one had a reversal of roles. We had the Samaritan, who was not a good Samaritan. The Samaritans were always bad, and the priests were good, but the priest went by the guy who had fallen to robbers, and the Samaritan helped him, so his, he was switched at the end from being the bad Samaritan to the good Samaritan. And then sometimes we had reversal of outcomes, like we just heard about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus. So here we have the rich man, and here we have Lazarus, who is the poor man at his gate, and they die, and we have this reversal of outcomes. Lazarus goes into the Abraham's bosom, and the rich man ends up in Hades. So watch today and see if we maybe have one of those reversals in this parable. Yeah, we do. <laughs> now, the parable that we're going to look at this morning is actually in a sequence of two parables. Both of the parables have something to do with prayer. The first parable is about a widow who knocks on the door of a judge late at night because she needs something, and she knocks and she knocks, and finally he gets up and he comes and he takes care of her need. And so this parable is talking about persistence in prayer. It's followed by the parable that we're going to look at today, which is a very familiar parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this parable teaches us about penitence in prayer. And so with that as an introduction... Let's read the parable, and uh, you might want to pull it out on your phone or in your Bible. It's in Luke 18, beginning with verse 9, and this is what it says. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, and I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, 
returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and to put your hands like this in an attitude of expectation with the Lord this morning, and to pray this prayer in your heart with me. Lord, speak to me this morning. Help me to pay attention. Help me to not say this parable is for the person next to me. Help me to say that this parable is for me. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. Amen. All right. Here we go. Now, this parable is really interesting because it's only one of three parables where Luke tells us who the target audience is. And this is what it says. Then Jesus told this story to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So we see two characteristics of who he's aiming this parable at. They have an attitude toward themselves where they're confident in their own righteousness. In fact, the Greek has the idea of they have persuaded themselves of their righteousness. That's their attitude toward themselves. And then they have an attitude toward other people. New Living says they scorned everyone else. I like the way the NIV translates it. They looked down on everyone else. So the attitude toward themselves is they're confident of their own righteousness and their attitude toward others is that they look down on them. So now here's the logical question when we're thinking about the target audience. Does this include me? Because if it doesn't, I'll just fold up and we'll go home. Now, I think that there is a tendency, because we have said the sinner's prayer, that we identify with the tax collector in this story. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I accept Jesus' provision for my sin. Thank you, Lord, for being merciful to me. And we argue, and it's true, what the scripture says, Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. But I think that we need to be careful not to make this parable so quickly about saying the sinner's prayer and salvation. Because I don't think that that's what this parable is actually about. Instead, we need to ask ourselves, as believers, are we prone to any of this religious confidence and superiority. And if we listen to the people out there in the community and in society, what are they saying about us? You're a bigot. And you're self-righteous. And so maybe we need to think about this parable in a little bit different way and ask ourselves, are we? Perhaps our propensity to say we're saved, they're lost, we're holy, they're sinful, we're in, they're out, might actually smack of the mentality of the target audience that we are so quick to eliminate ourselves from. And so this morning, maybe we need to take a closer look and ask ourselves, where are we really in this parable? And so with that as an intro, I want to look at three things this morning, and then I want to kind of ask us our response to it. Number one, I want to look at the difference between two men. There's a contrast. I'm going to look at the contrast between two prayers. And I want to look at the contrast between two outcomes. So let's start with the contrast between the two men. <clears throat> it says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. It's a very simple statement. But it's a statement that's pregnant with meaning because of all of the attitudes and ideas that the people in that society in that day had about these two particular individuals. So let's look at their attitudes about these two people to set up what Jesus is doing in this parable. First, let's look at the Pharisee. The Pharisee was considered the most holy and righteous and God-fearing person in the society of that day. And he had two goals. In fact, Pharisee means a separated one. So he had two goals in his life. Maybe more, but here's two primary ones. One was to preserve holiness by separating from sinners. So as I said, the name Pharisee means separated one. 
to preserve holiness by being separated from sinners. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, there was this question. If a holy thing comes in contact with an unholy thing, does the unholy thing make the holy thing unholy, or does the holy thing make the unholy thing unholy? Does that make sense? And what was the answer to the question? The unholy thing made the holy thing unholy. And so the Pharisees, they're living under that idea, and they're saying, I, I want to be holy. I don't want to touch unholy things. I don't want to be contaminated with sinfulness. It was a good motivation. But it explains things like when the Pharisee was having dinner with Jesus and the woman came in who was, quote, a sinner, and she started to anoint the feet of Jesus, what did the Pharisee say? How can this man be a prophet if he's letting this sinner touch him, contaminate him? He's a holy man, and he's becoming unholy by this woman touching him. So this was a goal that they had to be separated from sin in order to be holy to God. A second goal that they had was to preserve the law by putting a fence around it. Now today, as Christians, we sometimes disparage the law because we think of it in contrast to grace. We're saved by grace, we're not saved by the law, and you can't keep the law, and so we tend to look at the law and think, the law is not good. But that's not true. The law is very good. And they looked at the law in that way. We see this attitude all the way through the Bible. Psalm 1 says, the righteous man delights in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 19 says, the law revives the soul. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. So the law is good. And their intent was also good. They wanted to make rules that would help people keep from breaking the law. So, for example, the law says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In fact, over in Exodus 31, it says, anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. So what's the logical question? If I'm not going to work on the Sabbath, what does it mean to work? So the Pharisees would define, what does it mean to work? It means that I walk no more than this distance. It means that I pick up only these types of loads. And they were helping people to keep the law, which was good. And so this explains the situation that we have in John when Jesus on the Sabbath day heals the man who had been afflicted for 38 years and not able to walk. And he heals him and he says, take up your bed and walk. And the Pharisees come by and they say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Picking up your bed and walking on the Sabbath day, you're breaking the law. And so this is what shows us about the mistake that the Pharisees made. Because sometimes what they did was that they would take this to an extreme. And they would lay, neglect the more important things because they were so focused on keeping the letter of the law. Here they're criticizing this man for picking up his bed and walking. And they're neglecting the fact that he's been down there for 38 years. He wants to get up and he wants to celebrate. They missed the most important thing. It'd be like two guys, two, a, a guy and his brother are walking by a lake and there's a sign that says no swimming. And the younger brother falls in. And the older, older brother, he gets a branch and tries to pull him out and he can't pull him out. He gets a rope and he tries to pull him out. Finally, he jumps in to pull him out and save him. And right then, a police officer walks by right as they're getting out of the lake. And the police officer says, can't you read the sign? There's no swimming in this lake. And the older brother explains, you know, my brother fell in. I thought he was going to drown. I went in, I got him. I'm bringing him out to save him. And the police officer says, would have been better for you to leave him in rather than to break the law. So this is the kind of extreme that we were getting to with the Pharisee. And we have a tendency to look at the Pharisees because we're on this side of the Bible where Jesus judged them as hypocrites and told them they were only interested in what men thought and all of that. But in order to get the point of this story, we have to realize the esteem that they were held in by the people of that day. These were the holy men. These were the elders of the church. These were the holy ones. I want to be like you. Now let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector was hated. He was hated and he was despised as a sinner. First, he was hated because of who he represented. 
He represented the government of Rome. And here, in this particular time in history, the people are occupied by a foreign power, Rome, and they're oppressed by this foreign power, Rome. And here's this guy, possibly a Jew, who goes to work for this foreign occupying power. He's a traitor. This guy's a traitor. So they despised him for his association, who he represented, and they also despised him for what he did. He collected taxes. We all despise the tax collectors. <laughs> but they despised him because of how he did it. See, the way that the tax collection worked in that day is he would pay a fixed sum to the Roman government for the privilege of collecting the taxes. Then he would collect the taxes for the government, but he would collect more than the taxes, and whatever he collected more than the taxes, that was what he got to keep. So in certain respects, he was a licensed extortionist. And a lot of these guys were very wealthy. Remember when Zacchaeus that says he was very wealthy? He was a chief tax collector. He had other tax collectors under him, and he was very wealthy. And I imagine the people were mad and jealous and saying, look at him living in that house with my money. And they would tax, tax, tax. They would tax everything. They would tax tolls on the roads, and they would tax fees for the cattle that you have, and they would count the axles on your vehicles and tax for those, and they would have to give you a license in order to sell at the markets. Tax, tax, tax. Sound familiar? <laughs> but I want, I want to give you an idea of what it would be like. I want you to think about if, if today we had a local IRS agent, all right? Instead of somebody out there in the bureaucracy, or we just write a check or take a deduction from our... our, our credit card or whatever, um, he would collect all the taxes. Now my dad, my dad used to say, I hate withholding tax. Because what happens is the government withholds all this money and then at the end of the tax season you get a refund and you look at the refund and you're like, I'm so happy with the refund I got. And you didn't look at how much they kept. <laughs> you should have to write the check. And then it would hurt the way that it should hurt. And so, these guys, they had to write the check every time they saw these guys. And they would position themselves at key places, like Matthew, who was a tax collector, was at Capernaum. You guys have been to class with me? Right on the International Coastal Highway. Zacchaeus, he was in Jericho, right at the crossroads of the Jordan Valley and having to go up to Jerusalem. They positioned themselves at places where people would have to go conveniently. And then they would tax. And so it would almost be like... Um, uh, Every time we go to them, we have to pay the taxes like they did. So think about this. I have a local tax collector. I know him by name. And every time I see him, I have to pay my income tax. I have to pay my sales tax. I have to pay my vehicle registration fee. I have to pay my property tax. And I have to pay a value-added tax for him to put in his pocket. So you can see why these guys were despised, right? And if you guys, any of you seen The Chosen? Okay. So you remember when Jesus calls Matthew and the attitude of the other disciples? Like, what the? <laughs> and it continues all the way through the other episodes. Matthew's over there by himself. and all, that's, <laughs> When Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, the people muttered and said, he's going to the house of a sinner. That's the way they saw the tax collectors. So now we have the contrast between the two people. Now let's look at the contrast between the two prayers. I would label the Pharisees' prayer as a prideful prayer. Do you think? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. And I would characterize the tax collector's prayer as a penitent prayer. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven. And as he prayed, instead he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Now, let's look at this. First of all, before we look at the actual content of the prayer, I want you to look at the posture of the two men. The tax collector, it says, stood at a distance, which implies that there maybe was a distance from the Pharisee or there's something they're trying to get close to. Maybe they're trying to get close to the temple, but the Pharisee is the close one, and 
The tax collector is the distant one. Maybe even the presence of God. The, the Pharisee felt like he was closer to God and the tax collector felt like he was away from God. He was at a distance. And an interesting little preposition that is used to describe the prayer and the attitude of the Pharisee, it says he stood cross himself. Now that word can have the idea of toward. Sometimes it's translated by himself. Sometimes it's translated to himself. I don't think he prayed to himself because you can tell that, you know, he was looking around. We'll talk about that later. Um, so he probably might have been praying standing by himself. But I like the way that the message translates. It says, he posed himself. Because we have in many other passages where Jesus talks about how the Pharisees have phylacteries they want everybody to see and they stand in important places because they want to be seen of men. So I could very likely think he posed himself for his prayer. The implication is that the Pharisee was in front of the line and the tax collector was at the back of the line. Now, how they were standing, the Pharisee, it says, stands up to pray. Now, this is the typical way that the Jewish people would pray. Even today, in the synagogues, they pray the Adamah, which means to stand up. And probably they put their hands up. You remember that Paul tells Timothy, encourages men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. So we can picture the Pharisee standing there, lifting up holy hands in prayer, looking up to God, posing himself, and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. In contrast, we have the tax collector who dares not look up. So he's looking down. And his hands aren't up. His hands are beating on his chest, which is a picture of contrition, penitence, lowliness. And where were they looking? Well, the Pharisee probably looking up to heaven, the tax collector looking down. But I think the Pharisee was also looking around. Because while he's praying, he notices the tax collector and he says, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. So that's their posture, a very different posture. Now let's look at the content of the prayer. Mainly the prayer of the Pharisee was thanks for his religious superiority. Now, we think that this is a terrible prayer, probably. It's so self-righteous and everything. But interestingly, it was not atypical of prayers in that day. People prayed like this. They actually have found another prayer from the time of Jesus that has the same kind of spirit. Listen to this prayer. I thank you, Jehovah my God, that you have not assigned my lot with those who sit in the house, that you have assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early, but I rise to study the words of the Torah, and they rise to attend to things of no importance. And I weary myself and gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. And I run toward the life of the age to come while they run toward the pit of destruction. Typical prayer. Typical attitude. Congratulations to me because I'm such a holy person. And the Pharisee, he congratulates himself not only for fulfilling the law, but for going beyond the law. I fast twice a week. Well, what's so good about that? The law required one fast on the Day of Atonement, and the nation had established four fasts, but he fasted twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. Wasn't that expected? Well, actually, the tithe was only on the produce of the field, but they would go beyond because you remember when Jesus talks about how they tithe the mint and the anise, they would tithe on the herbs as well. So they went beyond the law. I go beyond the law. I'm so good. I'm so righteous. Now, we need to remember that there's no problem with these practices. They're actually commendable. But the problem is with the superior attitude and the looking down on other people. And if we're honest, and I think this is the thing that we need to struggle with this morning, we need to truly look at ourselves and say, is there any of that in me? Do I go, I'm at church today, and they're at the football game? Or look around the auditorium and say, I tithe, I bet the rest of those people don't. 
And if we have that kind of attitude, then there's Pharisee in us. And sadly, we don't just do this personally, we do it corporately, collectively, as a church. Any of you guys see the Jesus Revolution? About the, the time when the church struggled with whether or not to bring in those promiscuous, smelly, high on drugs, hippies. God can't save them. And yet he was. I was in college during those days. Actually experienced a lot of that. And I remember some of the music that came out. And one of the songs that I liked that was talked exactly about this thing. In fact, I went to the files and I dug out my vinyl. <laughs> of Daniel Amos. Here's a song that they had <clears throat> called Losers and Winners. Now, I ain't naming names, but I sense that some pride remains, and I do not want to exclude myself. But I had to take a look in the light of God's own book, so see if this sin ain't yours as well. Do you hail the gifted ones? And the others, do you shun? Do you speak to only those you choose? Well, God's love, it has no bounds. It has no ups and it has no downs. It goes out to those who win and those who lose. Do you give the highest place to someone because you like his face and set aside those you deem less than yourselves? Well, love that is natural can be less than satisfactual. For we all are one, no less than anyone else. Now clubs and cliques, they choose and pick, and they make their interviews, and they screen the undesirables, and they turn down clowns and fools. But Jesus died for sinners, losers, and winners. Yes, it's proven by his love for me and you. So what's the attitude that we have? By the way, if you're a senior and want to join me on Tuesday for Brunch and Bibles, we're going to explain, explore this whole relationship between insiders and outsiders in the church. But getting back to the Pharisee, I'm so good. Now let's look at the tax collector's content. Very short prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Young's literal translation says, God, be propitious to me, the sinner. Propitious. It's the idea of propitiation. It means to appease, to expiate, to placate. You guys remember that in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the top of it was what we call the mercy seat. Actually, the word that's used there is the propitiation seat. That's where they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb to propitiate to expiate the wrath of God towards sin and forgive the sins of the people. And so what the tax collector is praying is that God, propitiate for my sin, take care of my sin, because I'm a sinner. And the second thing is that he says, the sinner. It's not a sinner, it's the sinner. Now if it's an a sinner... I'm one of many sinners. I, I'm a sinner, God. All the rest of us are sinners too. We don't need to compare. But when it's the sinner, it's the idea, I'm the only one. Everybody else is above me. I'm the lowest of the low. I am the one and only sinner. It's the attitude that Paul had, had when he said, I'm the chief among the sinners. Everyone else is better than I am. So here we have the tax collector appealing to God to deal with his sin and the Pharisee, as far as he's concerned, he doesn't have any. And so we have this contrast in attitude. The Pharisee's attitude is prideful. He regards everyone else as a sinner compared to him. Thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. And the tax collector's attitude is penitence. He regards everyone else as more righteous compared to him. God have mercy on me, the sinner. Now we've looked at the two men. Now we looked at the two prayers, now looked at the two outcomes. Now remember, before we look at this outcome, the cultural expectation is that the Pharisee 
is the righteous one. He's the good guy. It's inconceivable to them that the tax collector, this sinner, is the righteous one. Everybody knows that he's a sinner, and so Jesus has them right where he wants them to set them up for the great reversal. And then he hits them with it. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified, righteous before God. What? That can't be. How's that possible? I didn't hear that right. And Jesus is pulling them in, and he's pulling us in right where he wants us. And then it's pow. He gives the point. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All of a sudden, the righteous one is unrighteous, and the unrighteous one is righteous. All of a sudden, the one that exalted himself is humiliated and humbled, while the one who humbled himself is exalted. The reversal. Now I want to hone in on two words. The first word is returned home justified. What does it mean to be justified? There are two different senses of justified. One is to be restored to a right relationship with another person. That's a personal way. Another is a legal sense, sort of like in court. When I'm declared not guilty, then I'm justified. When I was growing up, we had Good News Club in our house, and they taught us what justified meant. Any of you remember what justified was in Good, Club, Good News Club? Just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. That's the meaning of justified. So the sinner, the tax collector, is the one who goes home just as if I never sinned because this is used in the forensic sense, the court verdict, declared not guilty. And the thing that we need to remember is it's not the individual who determines which one is holy, which one is justified. It's not even the society that determines which one is holy and which one is justified. It's God who determines which one is holy and which one is justified. The Pharisee who justified himself before God ends up unjustified. And the tax collector who refused to justify himself ends up justified. And he's also brought right and closer to God. So that's justified. Now let's look at humility. Most of us have an idea of what humility means. It means to be brought low. There's a new Indiana Jones movie out. I haven't seen it. But I remember the third movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a great picture a great scene in there that teaches us about humility. Do you remember it? The crusade is to find the Holy Grail, which they think if they find this cup of communion that Jesus had, they would get eternal life. And so he's on the quest for this. And he goes into the cave, and he has three tests he has to pass. And the first one, do you remember it? The penitent man will pass. And he's saying it to himself as he goes into the cave. The penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. The penitent man is humble before God. And he falls on his face, and what happens right at that second? the blade goes right over the top of him and he's saved. So it's the picture that Jesus is communicating here. Isaiah 127, Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. It's the penitent that are righteous with God. So that's it, that's the parable. Now we have to look at it and say, okay, what about me? I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, and this is a hard question, and it's been a hard question for me this week, and it's going to be in this next week too. Am I a Pharisee? Do I justify myself before God? And do I look down on others? Or am I a tax collector? Do I consider myself unworthy and others as more worthy than I am? You've been watching The Chosen? I think you said you had. I love the way that they portray Jesus. The disciples and the people around them are walking along, and sometimes they encounter a person who is an outcast or a sinner, the woman at the well, the leper, a prostitute. And all the disciples and the other people, they have the attitude of looking down. No, in fact, they don't even look at. They just, these people don't require any of our attention or anything. I look down at them. And then you have Jesus who walks over and he gets down to their level and he looks them in the eye and he looks into their soul and he helps them however he can to move closer to God. 
And the people that are watching him, they're going, wait a minute. What is this? They're astonished by his actions. But why? Because unknowingly, they're afflicted with pharisaical pride. And they are watching tax collector humility. Philippians says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clung to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the position of a slave. So I'm going to bottom line it as simply as I can. As I believe the Lord has challenged me and I believe he wants to challenge us individually and collectively. It comes down to this. Look down or get down. Are you going to look down or are you going to get down? And here's the challenge with each person that you encounter this week. Ask yourself, am I looking down or am I getting down? And then do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Let's pray. Father, I know there are some here this morning that don't, as we're talking about this, that are totally identified with the tax collector. They feel like the outcast. They feel like the despised. And I pray that for them today, the message will be that God sees you. And your penitent heart makes you righteous before God because he declares you to be so. Now for those of us who have prayed the tax collector's prayer, repented and come to follow Jesus, some of us have to confess today that we still have some of that Pharisee in us. We have some of those attitudes of superiority. They might even come from the fact that we prayed that prayer. And so we ask you this morning to forgive us and to be merciful to us. But more than that, we pray that you will transform us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up? So as you go, I want to remind you that we have prayer people up front here. If you need prayer, you can come. They'll pray with you. You can just come and pray by yourself. And uh, as you go this week, ask yourself again, am I looking down or getting down? And so go with grace and peace, and get down this week. <laughs> See you next week.